Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Well, hi there. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. Here's what we do. Each week, we gather here to talk about work culture and happiness for about half an hour. And when I say we, I mean me. A lot of people have been contacting me saying, I really love these podcasts. And so what I did was I subscribed on iTunes and I've also written a review on iTunes. And then one night last week, I sent them all to all of my friends and a round robin email. And to those people, I say thank you very much. I can ask you no more. You can find us online. All the previous episodes are on our website, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. And it's fab to have you back. We've got a really interesting angle this week that I hope will challenge you to think about your own preconceptions. After the majesty of Andre Spicer last month, by the end of today, I think you'll agree that the Kiwi contingent have been the saviours of this podcast. Because today's guest, Sasha Judd, is a heroic New Zealander. I saw something online by Sasha last month and it was one of the freshest things I'd seen recently about diversity and work culture. It gets the mind racing to the things we could actually do. We're always used to hearing the excuse that recruiting women into technology is hard and normally girls are blamed. They're just not interested, we're told. Well, Sasha Judd today shows that for the nonsense it is. I want you to think about what Sasha said. Could we take action to change this? You'll hear Sasha's story pretty soon. Let me give you some context on female representation in tech. Boys outnumber girls. Boys outnumber girls four to one on computer science exams. Ridiculously, it's actually got worse in the last few years. Women are 47% of the workforce, but in the US, they make up about 17% of computer science jobs. In the UK, it's worse and it's trending downwards. In 2010, women made up 14% of computer science students. Four years later, it's 13%. So why is it that women make up the highest performers academically, but it's not translating to computer science and the world of work? At a time when we've realised the future of work is written in computer code, we're sitting on a crisis of hiring women into computer engineering roles. In the context of that, Sasha Judd is a visionary. Sasha runs the Hoku Group, a family office in New Zealand combining private investments, early stage tech ventures and a non-profit organisation. 
She's also the co-host of Refactor New Zealand, a series of events around diversity in technology. Listen to what Sasha says. Think about how it could influence and change the way that we behave. Get ready to love Sasha. Let's go. The interesting thing for me is how you found yourself in Berlin doing a presentation about One Direction at a conference. Can you just talk <laughs> yeah. us through that? Yeah, it was a pretty unusual story. Um, I mean, what happened was I spend a lot of time online in my personal life and I really like very strange rabbit holes on the internet. Like I love disappearing into a series of clicks which take you into a community or a world that you haven't necessarily come across before. And several years ago that happened to me, I was clicking around and I found myself uh, reading about this conspiracy theory um, that the fans of One Direction, the boy band, had come up with that two of the band members had been involved in a secret closeted gay relationship since the band was formed and I loved it because these fans were so passionate and they were spending so much time zooming in on paparazzi photos and slowing down video to try and work out if Harry and Louis had kissed or held hands and they were spending all this time putting together these analysis posts and proofs and I was just kind of marveling at this output going wow this is extraordinary but then I sort of forgot all about it um, and it was only when it crossed my path again a couple of years later um, through a weird series of coincidences involving a company that I'd made a small investment in uh, who had just started out with an online business and wound up having their signups slammed by these fans um, because they were offering a a backup service and the fans had been using Tumblr and Tumblr had started to take down some of their blogs because of audio content. And so these fans had started signing up for the service and I was like, these guys, I'd forgotten all about them. And so it was just this very strange uh, series of coincidences. But what happened then was I started telling this story over and over to people because I thought it was so great. And I started to get this really universal reaction, this pushback about the fact that, well, it's just about this dumb boy band. The, I think it was the universality of that reaction, the fact that everybody was like, yeah, but it's one direction. I mean, come on, it's embarrassing, it's stupid. And I just started to get really irritated at that response. And so my my way of responding to that irritation was to embrace it fully. I decided to just spam all my friends all the time with One Direction <laughs> gifts uh, on Twitter and, um, and send them links to One Direction songs. And I, I sort of became this incredibly annoying, over-the-top fake fan um, You're not a fan was, at all. You're not a fan in real well, life. I, I wasn't then. Right. It was. I was very much doing it to prove a point. I still couldn't tell them apart. Um, but I, the the response became sort of more and more vehement. I suppose from my friends going, "What are you doing? You don't really like these guys, do you?" Uh, and and the more time I spent online basically looking for One Direction gifts to troll my friends with, the more I realized that what the fans of this band were doing online was extraordinary. Um, the creative work that they were pouring into their pursuit of, you know, um, community and their passionate support for the band was really amazing to see. And that part of it was sort of unsurprising. I mean, I've moved in fan communities over the last 20 years. Like, I'm, I'm used to seeing people get really excited about a movie or a TV show or a pop star. But I think what was new for me was seeing the technical skill involved in the work that they were doing and, um, you know, the, the videos that they were making and the way they were using Photoshop to manipulate images and, um, and most of this is happening on Tumblr, so the way they were teaching each other 
CSS to make their Tumblr themes look great and um, sharing sort of code snippets with one another. And I suddenly realized there was something much more interesting going on. And um, so so once I, I started doing that, um, talking to other friends about it who work in the tech space and, and um, through a series of introductions wound up going to Berlin to talk about it. So that was an awesome opportunity. You, you say something really interesting in, in the talk that you gave. You say that you, you, sort, you get to this thing, which is like, why does society hate the things that teen girls love? And you, you give this comparison that if uh, someone created a series of links to all the samples that the Beastie Boys use, that's regarded as cool. If someone spots all the locations in Star Wars films, that's cool because it's, it's sort of like a, a teen boy or an adult boy behaviour. But as soon as it's a teen girl thing we sort of feel unabound to criticize it yeah we dismiss it out of hand and you know it it doesn't matter what it is I picked one direction but you know it could be Taylor Swift or Twilight or you know any number of things that young women in particular get passionate about are seen as being really silly and the best example I can think of that is how the dumbest action movie you know like it doesn't matter how stupid it is Fast and Furious 12 We'll still, you know, you're still not considered an idiot for going to watch that. But a simpering teen romance, well, what are you doing, you know? And so there's a very gendered aspect to that criticism. But as I point out in the talk, that's not new. You know, like the the fans of the Beatles who were screaming themselves hysterical were considered idiots back then. Uh, And I think that over the years, we've just made some really gendered assumptions about the things that it's okay to get excited about. And that's pretty disappointing when you start to unpack it. And at the back end of the presentation, you go into a whole uh, application of this for diversity in work and, and in recruitment. Just to kick us off that bit, you, you, you did a survey, and I, I found the survey results quite heartbreaking, but just talk us through the yeah. survey that you did. Yeah, well, I, once I realised that there's, I mean, most of the young women um, in the One Direction fandom were doing all of this work, which um, had a, a technical skill set to it, I started to wonder how it connected with our diversity pipeline, like why were these young women not on a pathway into tech and and all of the stats say that they're not. So I did a little survey and asked them just a couple of questions. I asked them the kind of platforms that they used to participate in fandom and the sort of work that they were doing online. And then I just asked them if they'd ever considered a career in technology and overwhelmingly they said no. And so I just gave them a free text box and I asked, if not, why not? And um, I had over 600 answers and I mean, you can see from the, the couple that I highlighted in the talk, the responses were really sad. Like they feel intimidated by technology, even though this is what they're doing online all day, every day. Uh, they felt that they weren't skilled enough or talented enough. Um, and they didn't really see a path to this being a job. You know, this is a hobby for them. And worse than that, it's an embarrassing hobby that they don't tell their friends and family about. There's nothing that connects to them that says this is a career path that you could follow and wind up being reasonably you know, well paid to do the, the stuff that you do online as part of your hobby. Uh, and so, yeah, it was really hard to see these answers and sort of see these talented young women say, you know, I'm not good with computers. I don't think I'm skilled enough. No one would hire me because, that, yeah, they don't give themselves credit. And you end up talking about just how so much of the sort of the architecture of tech jobs and, and actually so much of the workforce, the, the, the tech part is just the bit we're seeing here. But the, you talk about two things that I've scribbled down here. The, the, the way that Buffer changed a job title to, from Hacker and uh, about the flaws of pattern recognition. Yeah, well, maybe starting with pattern recognition. Yeah. I mean, I think... 
I think the hard thing, there isn't one answer around solving diversity and inclusion in tech, but one of the things that we hit often is pattern recognition. And that's, um, you know, it's a, a form of unconscious bias. And I think the problem is that label's being thrown around such a lot now that people are starting to see it as an insult almost, that if you start talking about unconscious bias, you're being accused of being sexist or racist or whatever. But at its core, that's just a cognitive bias. And we, our brain needs those, right? Just to get through the day, our brain is making hundreds of tiny assumptions faster than we even think about it. And, and one of those uh, examples is pattern recognition, which is our brain looks for traits that it's seen work before. So, you know, when it's trying to decide whether something's going to be successful or not, your brain is rapidly going, have I seen this happen in a way that's been successful? So when we think about it in terms of hiring, what mean, what that means is we start to look for candidates who exhibit traits that we've seen be successful before. Like we hired this person and, you know, they were ambitious and driven and they went about sales strategy in this way. So let's get 10 more of them. And also on an unconscious level, we look for people who've been on a similar journey to us because that's the journey that we understand. So, you know, if they've been hacking around on a computer since they were 10 and they like craft beer and they, you know, follow the same sports team and whatever, then there's a natural fit that goes on in our brain. It's like, wow, that person's like me. It's not so much that we hire people who actually look like us, but we do tend to hire people who've been on a similar journey. And over time in the tech industry, what that has meant is that, you know, um, software teams tend to be comprised of generalizing a lot of white dudes in hoodies who've all followed a similar path into tech. And if we're to change that, then we need to start hiring different kinds of people. And I think um, everybody recognizes that that's a good idea, but then we just sort of stall out because we go, well, I advertised for a junior developer and a bunch of white dudes and hoodies applied. So I hired one of those. Uh, and that's that's kind of lazy. Like I think we need to unpick where we're advertising for jobs and we need to unpick how we're advertising for jobs. Because if you advertise for a position and only white dudes reply, then you have to ask yourself, well, did I put it somewhere that only they saw it? Or was there something about the ad that meant that only they replied to it. There's quite a lot written now about how we can write better job advertisements and the services that'll assess your job ad for you in advance, you know, to see if, if the language is um, inclusive. Um, and an example of that is what happened at Buffer. And they've done a lot of really transparent work around their diversity. Like if you go to their website, they've got this great open source diversity dashboard now that other companies can use. Um, and the nice thing about Buffer is that they're still a relatively small team. So they're working on this at a, a scale that's um, reasonable for companies starting out, right? It's not like saying, oh, well, this is what Facebook does. And you sort of look at that as a small company and go, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. Although ironically, you'd probably be better at it than Facebook. But, but uh, you, you know, these systems work at a small scale. Um, and what they did was they looked at the wording of their job ads and Buffer had always used the word hacker for all of their positions. So they had front-end hackers and back-end hackers and iOS hackers. And they'd chosen that word deliberately because they felt hacker was an inclusive word, that it meant someone who didn't necessarily have a computer science degree, just got on, got the job done um, fast and well and, you know, wasn't interested in mind games and puzzles and so on. But what they found is their um, number of female candidates declined really rapidly um, was that that word was turning people away, that hacker didn't necessarily mean to everyone what it meant to them. So when they changed that, they started to see a shift in the number of people applying. And so I think just because we think of ourselves in a particular way or following a particular pattern 
it's not true for for everybody and if we're going to change the makeup of our teams that's one of the things we need to tackle it's worth saying i i, I don't think i gave enough credit to the quality of the work that i mean the, the it's worth saying isn't it the the larry stylinson creative work there's some video edits that are remarkable there's just some of the 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 photo photographic reconstructions all the work is of extraordinary standard isn't it this isn't just someone's yeah. pasted in a line of html this is like no, proper work not. and this is um you know i mean i highlight the the one direction fans but this is going on in every fandom right like that's i mean i picked one and and um, sort of picked it deliberately because it tackles people's um you know, preconceived assumptions, right? It's easy to hate on a boy band. Um, but yeah, I mean, fan, fan communities produce extraordinary work, fully wrought novels of hundreds of thousands of words and beautifully um, rendered digital art. And, you know, they cut video better than most post-production specialists. You know, like this is, they're very, very good at what they do, but they don't give themselves credit for those talents often because they're self-taught. So they teach one another how to do these things, how to use Photoshop or how to manipulate GIFs or, or so on. And so to them, it's, it's a sideline and a hobby and it's, um, they don't necessarily draw the connection between what they're doing online in their spare time and, and what we're doing out in the tech world as, as paid careers. It's a tragedy, isn't it? Because like, you can imagine someone at home has got a showreel that's just like this beautiful film that they've edited, yeah. that they're, they're yeah. actually ready to drop into a, a, a production job. And of course, they're probably scared to show it to anyone because the judgment that will be heaped upon them. Yeah, that's right. And it's, um, you know, I mean, I, that was certainly true for me. I mean, I, 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 up until 18 months ago, I was a partner in a law firm. You know, I've, I've written fan fiction for years. I would never have told anyone yeah. in my professional life that that's what I was doing. Like when I gave this talk on stage in Berlin, that's the first time I've ever fessed up to my first website uh, because it was a fan website. So I'm not going to tell people that that's what I've made. I spent years keeping my fan identities and my, my real identity separate. And it, one of the beautiful things about giving this talk actually has been people coming up to me afterwards uh, confessing their own first secret projects you know the the first website they made or the first thing they um, built for sharing online and you know I think we need to do a lot more of that you know owning our own yeah. first embarrassing project so that other people can say oh well this thing that I do you know it is a real path and I you know it comes back to what you what you feel embarrassed about and unfortunately the stigma attached to the things that young women enjoy means that they're not really willing to share. Fifty Shades started off as a Twilight fan fiction, so like e. you know, James, yeah, e. L. James, yeah, 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 yeah. You said that if someone was facing these things, these project include, which seems to be a an attempt to try to tackle some of these at a slightly more scale level. Yeah, that's right, and I think one of the hard things about diversity work is that um, people in groups affected by it feel like they have to do the 101 work all the time, you know, because you get well-meaning people who are like, oh, well, we want to change this. What do we need to do? You know, and so it can be really exhausting to make the people from minority groups in your organisation come up with the answers for you all the time. They shouldn't have to do your diversity work for free. And Project Include is a group effort. Um, you can find it Project Include on Twitter and, and they've got a website. Um, and what they've done is come together and they've pulled all the research together 
So if you're needing to share it with um, people further up your organization who want to see the science and research behind some of these things, all of that's there on the site. And then some very, very specific recommendations about things you can do, um, even starting out when you're a small team. And I think that's one of the things that I really want tech companies not to overlook because culture beds in so quickly. Uh, And so it's very easy when you're just starting out and you've got a small team and you're like, well, we'll just get a bunch of people together who we've known from previous projects because we can move really fast and break things. Uh, And then once we prove that this product or service is successful and we'll start raising capital and so on, that's when we'll start hiring some other people. Uh, But the problem is by the time you're 10 white guys and a dog, then why would anyone who doesn't look like you want to come and join the organization? Mm. And all of the research shows that diverse teams build better products. Um, they do better financially. Uh, the teams are smarter and faster and uh, at producing good work. And that's because you're challenging one another's assumptions all the time. You're not thinking about things in the same way and you're not tripping over blind spots. Um, and so Project Include gives you some really specific recommendations about culture, hiring, remuneration, um, promotion, uh, how to deal with HR internally and so on so that hopefully you don't see the sorts of things that have gone on at Uber in the last couple of weeks um, happen to your company. So that's a, a great starting point as a resource. And to finish, what's your favourite One Direction song? Oh, that's so hard. I don't know how to answer that. I love them all. Uh, probably story of my life. Right. I'm a best song ever guy. Ah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. I really appreciate Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Appreciate that. Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? A really fascinating episode, and I think for me... Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or 
anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It opened my eyes to the ways that we can handle problems in a, and solve problems in a different way. If you've enjoyed today, please do share it. I'm always interested to receive your tweets. You can find us at Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat on Twitter. Thank you for listening. See you next time.